realize that if Sabbath is going to live, if it's going to exist, if it's going to thrive in our lives, something else is going to have to die. And this is where it gets real, folks. Because if you've been living a life where busyness has gone relatively well for you, then to stop that, even for a little bit, is going to mess with who you are. If checking things off the to-do list has gone relatively well for you, to stop and put that down might wreck with the roots of who you thought you were. Welcome to the Missing Voices podcast. I'm your co-host, Caitlin Posey, and this podcast is all about youth ministry, young people on the margins of society and the church, and how we might better love, serve, and learn from those young people. We're convinced that these often overlooked or forgotten adolescents belong in the church and that our youth ministry should take them seriously. So with each episode, we'll take a look at these ideas and together wrestle with what the future of youth ministry might just look like. Let's dive in. Welcome to part two of Nate Stuckey's keynote address from our 2020 Youth Ministry Forum here at Flagler College in St. Augustine, Florida that took place last February. In part one of Nate's keynote address, he spoke about Sabbath and identity on Friday night. This episode that you'll be hearing from is his Saturday afternoon final keynote address where he wraps up his talk on Sabbath and how we can move forward and live into these identities that are truly life-changing and freeing. It is so hard to live in that space and to practice Sabbath, but Nate offers such a relevant word to all of us during this day and age of the coronavirus and just the busyness that we all feel in our lives that can just be like a drain, right? Where we're sucked into uh, the life of busyness and are unable to pause and reflect and enjoy the identities of being children of God, which is who we are. So we're grateful for Nate's address on this and welcome everyone to the Missing Voices podcast. So a quick recap of where we were uh, last night. Uh, last night, we, we did kind of a, a deep dive into the story of creation, uh, the seven-day creation story in Genesis 1, uh, 1, 1 to 2, 3. We zoomed over to the uh, Sabbath commandments in Deuteronomy and in Exodus, and, uh, and I affirmed to you, and I hope that you glimpsed it, and I hope that you dared to imagine that it could be true, that, that, that maybe, just maybe, Sabbath is this extraordinary gift, not something that we earn, not something that we get to do because we have our ducks in a row or because we've got enough stuff done, but because it's a gift through which maybe we, come a little, we become a little bit more whole. And through it, we become complete. And there is this grace. So I, here's the thing. I believe all of that. Everything I said last night, I, I really believe it. I believe the Sabbath is this extraordinary gift. 
I believe it makes us more whole. I believe it's for the whole creation. I believe it's part of who God is and that we can glimpse something about who God is when we're willing to go there that we can't glimpse otherwise. And it sounds, it sounds at this point in the story, perhaps like this amazing gift. Like how, how could we possibly refuse? I think that's true too. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. If we keep reading scripture, which I think we should, if we're willing to do that and actually look at how Sabbath unfolds in the lives of characters in scripture, it gets messy quick, real quick. So if I have a critique of a lot of the stuff that's out there that's been written about Sabbath, and there's wonderful things, there's good, you know, there's wonderful things, but, but something that I think just doesn't get enough attention is that the, 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 the dominant sort of, um, picture of Sabbath is, um, Sabbath is, is lovely. <laughs> and it's recreation. And it looks like a hammock stretched between, well, it looks like this. Look, right over there. Hammocks <laughs> stretched between trees. There it is. That's Sabbath. Bright. Colorful, the sun is shining, people are snoozing. That is the Sabbath. And it could be. And there's something about the Sabbath that might look a lot like that. But a lot of times it doesn't. A lot of times it doesn't. And a lot of times in scripture, it doesn't. Because here's the deal, and I think we know this. I think young people know this, and they might be more honest about it than we are. And the reality is we, we recognize the pressures that are, that are all around us and that sort of uh, just, just squeeze us. And we realize that if Sabbath is going to live, if it's going to exist, if it's going to thrive in our lives, something else is going to have to die. And this is where it gets real, folks. Because if you've been living a life where busyness has gone relatively well for you, then to stop that, even for a little bit, is going to mess with who you are. If checking things off the to-do list has gone relatively well for you, to stop and put that down might wreck with the roots of who you thought you were. And then we're back to the question, is God good? Do we really believe it? If we're willing to look, here's what I want us to do. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to go through a couple of examples in Scripture of what Sabbath practice actually looked like so we can get at, you know what, this is actually messy. Yeah, there's the hammock and there's the wholeness and there's the grace, but it's also a messy scenario. But before we go there, I need to say that the two examples that I'm going to use are the Israelites in the wilderness in Exodus 16 and the Pharisees as they interact with Jesus on the Sabbath in the Gospels, all right? Israelites and Pharisees. And I need to give a, uh, a disclaimer that I want you to listen to very carefully, all right? Um, something that the Christian church, I think, has, has, has um, tragically missed is its Jewish roots. Jesus was a Jew, okay? It's just the truth, right? And and Christians have too often talked about characters in Scripture, for example, Pharisees and Israelites, and turned those characters into caricatures and into straw men for the sake of our shallow interpretation. We have an obligation in a day and age when in New Jersey, people are 
responding violently to our Jewish communities and in other places throughout the world to be extremely cautious when we are interpreting the Jewish characters in our Holy Scriptures. Are you with me on this? Does it make sense? So I'm going to, the way this is going to unfold is it's going to start to sound like I'm going in that direction, but I need you to know that the truth of the matter is I am a Pharisee and I am an Israelite. And that is both a positive and a negative thing. So we're going to try to encounter these characters, at least some of them, in all of their complexity. All right? So what did Sabbath actually look like when you get to Scripture? Exhibit A. We have the Pharisees. Now, if you go through the Gospels, there are all these stories in which Jesus and the Pharisees and the Sabbath all happen in the same story, right? And so, for example, uh, Matthew chapter 12. First mention of Sabbath in the Gospels, if you're just reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew 12, uh, there's this story. Jesus and the disciples uh, on the Sabbath walking through a grain field, right? You with me on this one? The disciples get hungry. Uh, and so they decide, you know what? We're going to pluck some heads of grain. We're going to eat it. The Pharisees observe us, and they ask a question of Jesus. Why are your disciples doing what it is not lawful to do? The story proceeds into the synagogue where Jesus encounters a man with a withered hand, and the Pharisees watch to see if Jesus will cure, will heal this man. Of course, Jesus does, and the disciples or the Pharisees come back with the same question. Uh, it's not lawful to cure on the Sabbath. One of them, the, so, so there's something going on here with the Pharisees and the law and the Sabbath. One of the most perhaps egregious examples of this comes in John chapter 5, where the disciples again are with Jesus, and it's on the Sabbath. And there is a man there who has uh, been ill, the text says, for 38 years. Catch that? 38 years. Jesus heals this man, says, get up, take your mat, and walk. This is stunning. An unbelievable display of Christ's power, Christ's healing power. And the Pharisees' response is, it's not lawful to carry your mat on the Sabbath. Now, so Sabbath keeping from the Pharisees' perspective uh, has a few characteristics. For them, um, the, the Sabbath is extremely important. Right? I'm with them on this. For the Pharisees, the Sabbath, there's a right way to keep the Sabbath, and there's a wrong way to keep the Sabbath. So if I was going to utilize my little feathered friends here to give you... I got too many ducks here. Um, if I'm going to utilize my ducks here to give you a visual representation of, of how the, the Pharisees are trying to keep the Sabbath here, you will recall that the Sabbath... Uh, for uh, uh, people of Jewish faith begins Friday, right, at sundown and goes Saturday to sundown. So for the Pharisees, they're like, all right, this is what Sabbath keeping is about. The sun goes down on Friday. All right, so then uh, you light your candles and you do the appropriate meal and you surely don't go plucking heads of grain and eating that. And then you don't walk too far and you go to the synagogue and you don't cure people. And then you wait and then finally the sun goes down on Saturday night and boom, you just kept the Sabbath. Now, the irony here, of course, is that they are working like crazy to rest. They're working like crazy to rest. The reality for us, the reality for us, as far as I can tell, is that for as long as we reduce Sabbath to a list of rules and regulations, 
It'll just be a source of finger pointing and frustration. And the tragedy there is that contrary to that seventh day where it appears that the, where, where there's no, where the humans have no work of their own to reflect on and the invitation is to look at what God is doing when it's all about the rules and regulations, whose work are we looking at? Only our own. Because it's only about what we're doing or what we're not doing. And we miss perhaps this bigger point of turning our gaze from ourselves and our to-do lists to the God who created the heavens and the earth to begin with. You with me? That's the Pharisees. That's exhibit A. Exhibit B, this is an actual Instagram post from the Israelites in the wilderness. (laughs) They're gathering manna uh, from the ground. Um, You know this story, right? Uh, The Israelites um, are, are in Egypt for hundreds of years, 400, 430, depending on which text you look at. They're in, they're in Egypt uh, hundreds of years. They show up in Egypt uh, to begin with as, as welcome guests. Bless you. Uh, Joseph is there in the whole scenario. But of course, a new person comes into power and, uh, and who, who doesn't remember Joseph. And the Israelite people are enslaved in Egypt for generation upon generation upon generation. God ultimately sends in Moses and Aaron. There's 10 plagues. Finally, finally, there's the last plague and the Israelites are delivered through the Red Sea into the wilderness and the food runs out. And the Israelites complain because that's what you do when the food runs out. And God responds, among other things, with with manna to feed them. But it's not just manna, it's manna and Sabbath all wrapped up into one. And we know how it goes with the silly Israelites, right? Like God gives these very clear instructions about five days, you go out and you get enough for one day and you eat it all. And then on the sixth day, you go out, and you get twice as much. On the seventh day, you don't go out. And of course, some of these Israelites, they just, they just can't get it, right? So they're like, you know, some of them are saving some over for the next day, and then it turns foul and it breeds worms. And then on day seven, some just have to go out and see, right? So if I'm going to use my little feathered friends again here to give you a visual representation of the Israelites, uh, some of these Israelites and their way of keeping the Sabbath, it would go something like this. It would go like, look, I understand the whole instruction bit about like, you know, not going out on the seventh day. But do you understand that our lives actually depend on this? No food, no life. So you know what? Day seven rolls around. I'm just going to go out there and I'm going to see just in case. And then once I get enough of that done, then I'll rest. So from the perspective then of these Israelites who just got to go out on day seven and see, it goes more like this. It's like, look, I'm sure that this Sabbath is a great idea. I just got some work to get done first. And I think we know how this goes too. The reality here is if Sabbath keeping is something that we put off until we get enough work done, ain't never going to happen. If rest is something we're going to put off until we get enough work done, ain't never gonna happen. So what about you? What about you? Are you the Pharisee, perhaps? The one who is convinced that there is a right way to do the Sabbath, and doggone it, I'm gonna get it right. Or are you more like the Israelite? The one who says, look, yeah, I get it. It's a great idea, really but I just got to get a few more things done and then it never happens. 
So confession. You should take those questions back with your people and have confession time. For now, I'll just offer you mine. I already gave it on both. I am the Pharisee. I can tell you, I said, did I say this yesterday? Is it a terrible idea to write a book about Sabbath? Because first of all, it's a lot of work. And second of all, in case you actually get inside and you glimpse Sabbath for what it is, you're like, oh my goodness, here I am. And then it's, oh, this is primary research. Got to write this down. I can be the Pharisee that's like, no, doggone it. I'm writing a book on this thing. I'm going to get it right. And then I can be the one that's like, uh, look, I'm, yeah, there's actually a lot to do here. So we're going to just, you know, get a few more things done and then I'll rest. And then the rest never happens. And I wonder where you're at. Statistically, I've asked a lot of groups these questions. Statistically, uh, there's always a few church people who just want to get it right. And the vast majority just think they got to get some work done. So I don't know where you're at, and it's probably a little bit of both. Uh, the uh, the quote-unquote American dream, which should be critiqued to its core, is more like, no, we're going to get some stuff done. Anyway, what are the risks? Think about this. What are the risks if we refuse this gift? What if we're like, you know what? We just don't have time. We can't really do this. There's at least a few things here. First of all, there is this risk that we believe, we really begin to believe that the ministry ultimately depends on us. Now we're back to the question of divine and human agency. Who's doing what here? And if it's true that there is a God who created the universe, the heavens and the earth, who is alive and at work in the world today, if it's true that Jesus came and was fully divine and fully human and came to really set us free so that we could have the life that really was life, the abundant life, and that if it's true that Jesus not only died but rose again so that we could live, and if it's true that the Holy Spirit came to the church to bring us life and health and strength strength, if all of that is true, then how can we live our lives as if the kingdom depended only on us? How can we conduct our ministries as if to say, look, if I don't get my to-do list done, the kingdom's gone. Shame on us. But we've had enough shame. Don't do, just stop. Can we glimpse the risk? Can we glimpse what's at stake here for ourselves and for the people we love? For the people we say we're called to serve? Because if we are out there and we're just going and going and going and going and going, we've already recognized that's not freedom, that's captivity. And it's not love either. And the thing we are proclaiming is not the almighty saving grace of Jesus Christ. It's our illusions of our own superiority. Among other things. Or it could be the proclamation of our own fear. It could be the proclamation of our inferiority. There's something at stake here, folks. There's something at stake in our relationship with rest. So what do we do? What do we do? I mean, if it is true that it's this gift 
that makes us whole. And it's this reminder that the work of ministry never ultimately depended on us, that salvation never ultimately depended on us. If, it's all, that, if all that is true, then, then what do we do? I think we have to go back to the wilderness for a second. I think we have to go back to the wilderness and we have to empathize for a moment with these siblings of ours. And we have to ask ourselves, why did the story go the way the story went? And we have to imagine for a second how the story could have gone. I mean, think about this, right? The Israelites show up in the wilderness and they're hungry, and God provides the instruction to them. And the instruction actually is a little bit complicated about this whole gather enough for one day and then eat it all and do that for five days, and on the sixth day you get twice as much, eat half of that, on the seventh day you're going to have that stay, don't go gather, all this kind of stuff. How much simpler would it have been? How much simpler would it have been if God had simply said, look, I heard, I got the memo about your hunger. Manna buffet every morning at seven out on the wilderness floor, help yourself. Like, you can't, you can't fail that. That's not how the story goes. Instead, God brings the manna and the Sabbath all wrapped up into one. Why would God do that? What's going on there? I think we have to assume that God's up to something here, but what is it? And to get at that, I think we have to go to the question of, of human identity, of the identity of the people of Israel, and how do they know who they are? And how do they know what they're worth? Think about this. How do you measure the worth of an Israelite in Egypt? It's very simple. Brick production. How do you measure the worth of an Israelite in in Egypt? You are worth as much as you can produce. Does that hit anybody in the gut in here? You are worth as much as you can produce. Have you heard that? Have you felt that? Did you learn it at church? Next question, how do you measure the worth of an Israelite in the wilderness? The whole thing went topsy-turvy there. Because now what's interesting is the Israelites cry out, God. they, They cry out, they cry out to God. They cry out, oh God. Anyway, the Israelites cry out in the wilderness, right? The Israelites cry out in the wilderness and God responds in a language that is so familiar. God gives them a quota. Now surely this is familiar, right? There were quotas all over the place in Egypt and it was the virtually impossible number of bricks that they had to produce, presumably, in in the wilderness. (laughs) Go out and gather one. Just one. One over. But here's the identity-wrecking part of this story. God tells them to go gather one one omer per person. That's enough for daily bread. And then the radical instruction, eat it all. Eat it all. Friends, I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that there are people in this room and there are people who are loved by people in this room who know what it means to be food insecure who know what it means to not know where the next meal is coming from. Friends, that's the situation of the Israelites in the wilderness. The food is gone. And God provides enough just for one single solitary day and then says, eat it all. Eat it all. Eat till it's gone. 
Now, all of a sudden, now we're inside. Now we're inside the Israelite experience, I think, because there are parents in this room. There are parents in this room who, if you're out in the wilderness and you've been given one omer for every person in your tent, all of your kids, and you know what it means to be hungry, you better believe I'm saving some for better believe I'm saving some for my kids. And all of a sudden, it doesn't look like this silly disobedience of the Israelites. Or the ones who go out on day seven, right? The one, and, and remember where they've come from. They've come from this place where surely a little extra effort cashed out in favors with the overlords. So of course they want to work a little extra hard If that's the truth of the matter, then they're not out there meaning any disobedience. They're out there for extra credit. People, we do this in ministry all the time. God has given us good work to do, and we don't know how to put it down. And the question is then where is our identity parked? Is it parked in the one who gives it freely in the first place, the gift that could never be earned at all? Or is it parked in our to-do list, in our productivity, in our brick production? I don't think it's actually surprising that the Israelites end up in the wilderness for 40 years, one generation. One generation, it takes a while for the lesser identity to pass away and for the new one to take root. But through that slow, gracious, identity-shaking repetition, slowly but surely, the Israelites are not known as captive people anymore, but can begin to be known as those who trust this is what's required. What's required to eat it all? Trust that there will be daily bread again tomorrow. What's required to hold over that second portion for the seventh day? Trust that it won't go foul. And to stay home in your tent on the seventh day and not go out and gather what's required? Trust that it will begin again on the eighth day. Here's the invitation as far as I can tell. It is to die to our lesser identities. It is to die to every identity that would have us captive to anything other than a God who is gracious and good. The question remains, uh, so what do we do? For this, we turn to a somewhat underutilized resource in theological education, Sesame Street. Enter, re-enter, ducks, stage left. Have a look at this video And then we'll ask this question again. So what do we do? Listen up, everybody. You're going to hear from a dude who is truly cool and very fresh. But he's got a problem that he wants to lay on us. Uh, Come on in, Ernie, my man. Excuse me, Mr. Hoots, I hate to bug a busy bird, but I want to learn the sax, and I need a helpful word. I always get a silly squeak when I play the blues. Ernie, keep you cool, I'll teach 
you how to blow the sax. I think I did your problem. It's rubber and it quacks. You never find the skill you seek till you pay your dues. You gotta put down the ducky. Put down the ducky. Put down the ducky. Yeah, you gotta leave the duck alone. You gotta put down the ducky. Put down the ducky. Put down the ducky if you wanna play the saxophone. Ernie wants a good thing. He wants to play the saxophone. But he's got this other good thing that he loves. But the only way for his hands to be open, to be able to receive and live into that other good thing, is to put the other good thing down. If we want to dig maybe a little deeper into the story of the Israelites and the Pharisees and think about like what was God actually asking them to do, I think that we could say that on the Sabbath, God is asking them to not do something on which it appears their lives depend. Don't do something on which it appears your life depends. The Israelites could make a very compelling case that their lives depended on the gathering of manna, and God says, put it down. Put it down so that you can receive the rest, the disorienting rest that might uproot that productivity-obsessed identity and replace it with one rooted in God's grace. What about you? What is the thing that tempts you to believe your life depends on it? might be a very good thing that God is saying, put it down. Put it down and receive this identity-shaking, life-wrecking gift that is rest with the hope that we may be made whole and that we may proclaim the gospel that ultimately depends on God and not only on us. Let's pray. God, give us perspective to know the thing, the things that you invite us to put down. Grant us the rest we seek. Walk with us as the old identities pass away. And let the light and the life of your grace and your kingdom reign among us and throughout your whole creation. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. What a great word from Nate in this part two series on Sabbath. I was so grateful to be in the audience when Nate delivered this final keynote session on Saturday afternoon. And I felt myself thinking, I should probably order myself a ducky and put it on my desk at work or my kitchen counter. Maybe I should order two. And think about Nate's message every time I look at that ducky, that I have the freedom to put it down, which is an amazing truth that we can live into as Christians and as people of God, to find rest in our true identities. And then also recognizing the things in our lives that need to die in order for others to live. 
So maybe the question for you today is, what is God stirring in your heart that maybe needs to die or to be let go of in order for new life to live, a new fruit to be born in your life? It's a good question. I'm going to think on that one. If you would like to check out more from Dr. Nate Stuckey, check out his website, wrestlingwithrest.com. You can find information about Nate there, and you can also order his book there called Wrestling with Rest, Inviting Youth to Discover the Gift of Sabbath. It's also on Amazon. And if you'd like to keep up with our work at the Missing Voices Project, feel free to check out our website, missingvoices.flagler.edu, or you can find us on social media, Flagler College Youth Ministry. Thanks everyone for being here. And we'll see you next time.